Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Well, uh, yesterday was Veterans Day, uh, the day when uh, World War I ended, Armistice Day, November the 11th, at 11, 11 a.m., a day when we uh, remember those who are in conflict and those who have served uh, in military uh, to keep us safe. And so uh, today I thought we could spend a little time just praying for peace in our world. It feels like we really need it. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you told us that uh, we would always have wars and rumors of wars uh, because we're so sinful that we can't uh, solve the world's problems, and yet we keep trying to do it uh, through the force of our will, uh, the buildup of our military might, our anger, our aggression, our defensiveness, and our hostility. And uh, Lord, I thank you that you uh, showed a different way, that you're the Prince of Peace, and that you've said that there's gonna be a day when you return and beat swords into plowshares, when you uh, disarm us forever and remove the temptation uh, to hate and to harm. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for those who do serve in military. Lord, we thank you for the state when it's used rightly and how you use it to protect us from evil. And yet we confess, Lord, that we often misuse uh, the power of the sword ourselves. We thank you that you warned us that those who live by the sword die by the sword. And so we pray, uh, Lord, for the conflicts in Israel and Gaza and Myanmar and Afghanistan and Ukraine and Yemen and Ethiopia. And we bring them before you. Lord, we ask that you would supernaturally intervene, that you would protect your people, that you would deliver them both from temptation and from evil and uh, that you would bring peace on the earth. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly and that you would rule over us because we have done such a poor job of ruling ourselves. Uh, We pray now, Lord, as we open your word, that your spirit would come and uh, give us ears to hear your voice and a heart to respond. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, in 2002... Larry Crabb wrote the book, The Pressure is Off, and that book begins with this observation. Right now, at this very moment, you're walking one of two paths through life. Either you've decided what you most want in life is within your reach, and you are going to do whatever you believe it takes to get it, or you realize that what you most want is beyond your reach and you're trusting God for the satisfaction that you seek. You want him, nothing less, not even his blessings. Crab goes on, if you're walking the first path in life, your life is filled with pressure. Inside where no one sees, your soul is weary. You see no way to step off the treadmill. Or life is going well and you're satisfied. 
but you sense something is wrong, something's missing, the pressure is still there. If you're walking the second path, you have hope. Your soul may be weary, but your interior world, even though it's filled with struggle, has a glimmer of hope. At times you rest. Something's alive in you. The desire of your heart is not smothered. You taste freedom, and that taste brings joy. Now, when I first read these words, I was on the first path. We were about to start hope. It was April of 2002. And I was pretty sure that with God's help, I could produce a church that would become the kind of family and friends that I'd always wanted. The pressure was on. And if you're around in those early days, you could feel it, especially if you were Holly. Over time, God's convinced me to give up on that pursuit and slowly is teaching me to walk on the second path. Sometimes my soul is weary. Sometimes my life is filled with struggle, but I've got some hope, and I can taste freedom, and that taste brings me joy. Now, here's why I bring this up. In our passage today, as we continue our journey through Mark, we get to see both groups engage with Jesus. The first group we meet is pursuing the better life of God's blessings, while the second group is pursuing the better hope of a relationship with God. We begin with the first group. Word of Jesus' supernatural power to deliver people from physical sickness and spiritual slavery is out. He's traveled throughout Galilee healing people and teaching in the synagogues of different villages, and he's returned home to his home base of Capernaum. Now, people are coming to him in droves. Our passage begins in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, where we read this. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed him from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they had heard about everything he was doing. The crowds, see, have gotten so big that Jesus can no longer teach in homes or synagogues. He's had to relocate. He's had to re relocate to the beach. And even there, the crowds are so big that he can't stay on land. He has to move out onto the water because the crowd was about to crush him. Verse 9 says, Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. What's going on? Why is the crowd pushing in so hard on Jesus that his life is at stake? And the answer is, the crowd is more interested in Jesus' power than they are in his person. As Crabb explained, they had decided that what they most wanted out of life was within their reach, and they were going to do whatever it took to get it, even if that meant that Jesus could no longer do what he wanted to do, like sleep or eat or teach. We're prone to the same thing whenever we start doing something religiously. Listen to how Crabb describes this approach. The first path is the old way. 
It involves a quid pro quo arrangement with God, or if not with God, then with the order in the universe, with the rules that make life work. If you do what you should do, then you get what you want, either from a moral God who rewards good behavior or from an orderly world that you effectively use. It leaves you in control of how things turn out in your life. The old way promises a better life filled with good things that make you happy, but it never delivers. Though it may seem to for a long time, the old way doesn't work out for one reason. You never keep your end of the bargain. Not completely. No one does. Which is why Jesus had to issue a warning. Verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God! And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. This is one of the most sobering truths revealed in our passage today. It turns out that demons can be very religious. That they're prone to promote quid pro quo religion. This is why the guys who flew the planes into the World Trade Center believed they were doing God's will. They'd been deceived into believing that their self-sacrifice was going to secure for them an eternal paradise. Jesus' younger brother, James, explains demonic religion this way in James 2, 18 and 19. He says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God, good, even demons believe that and shudder. What uh, James is explaining here is that demons have very good theology. After all, they used to be angels. And they don't mind if you have very good theology as long as you don't repent. As long as your faith has no practical impact on your everyday life, they're all for it. They love for you to come to church and then go back to work on Monday and do the same old thing over and over again. You see, the demons know a lot about God, but they don't trust the God that they know a lot about. Consequently, when Satan first appeared to Jesus in the wilderness, he had several recommendations for how Jesus' ministry would be more impactful if he would just follow Satan's advice instead of putting himself in a position of dependent trust on his dad. The first was consumer Christianity. Satan suggested that Jesus would get what he wanted if he made God give him what he needed. Been 40 days, he was starving, and he said, hey, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Why don't you just spend all your time praying about your needs? But Jesus valued his relationship with God more than his comfort or material gain. And so he reminded Satan of Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Satan pivoted and suggested, Oh, well, then maybe instead of consumer Christianity, why don't you pursue Christian celebrity by forcing God to do a miracle publicly in accordance with a promise that he made in Psalm 91, 11, and 12 which says, For he will give his angel, angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus explained 
that per, the pursuit of religious celebrity is actually a means of testing God. So it should come as no surprise that Jesus warns former angels and those who have recently been delivered from captivity to them with the following warning. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, you're the son of God. And he strongly warned them not to make him known. See, here we see Jesus explaining to people who had just been delivered from spiritual slavery that their former masters were trying to trick them on their way out. They're giving them this special insider information about God, the secret knowledge. And now that those people were free from the dominion of darkness, they had a choice. They could either concern themselves with what Jesus wanted and keep their mouths shut, or they could give the people what they wanted and tell everybody about the miracle they just experienced. What did the crowd want exactly? Well, the crowd wanted the third thing that Satan tempted Jesus with, and that is access to power. Having failed to get Jesus to produce consumer Christianity and, or to pursue Christian celebrity, Satan suggested that instead Jesus pursue Christian nationalism. He said, if you'll just worship me, I will make you the greatest monarch the world has ever seen, the single most powerful politician to ever walk the planet. You, Jesus, will receive a crown of the kingdom, but you can skip the cross. You can go straight to ruling with no suffering. Under you, I will produce a unified, coercive Christian government. But again, Jesus said no. And why not? Well, Napoleon, of all people, understood why. He says this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But upon what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. So what did Jesus do instead of coercing people to obey his rules? Verse 13, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. Jesus chose intimacy with God and intimacy with humans over personal prosperity celebrity, and power. Rather than turning stones into bread, he became the bread of life by allowing his body to be broken for God's glory and your good. Rather than forcing angels to protect him in the center of Jerusalem, he allowed himself to be betrayed, abandoned, tortured to death, and executed outside the walls of the city while telling angels to hold. And rather than pursuing political power, he told Peter to put the sword away. He allowed himself to be kissed 
by Judas, arrested by the temple priest, mocked and whipped by Herod and crucified by Rome so that he could say to the thief on the cross who asked him to remember him when he entered his kingdom, today you will be with me in paradise. Which reveals how far God is willing to go to get what he wants. And what does he want? He wants you. He wants you. Verse 13, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. Wants you for what? A lifelong, eternal relationship with the God who loves you and gave himself for you. Listen to how Crabb describes it. He says this, The second path is the new way. In this arrangement, God first plants a desire in your heart, a longing that actually values his presence over his blessings. Then he invites you to live out of that desire, to abandon yourself to what you most want. It takes you out of control, but it sets you free. The new way promises a better hope than the good things of life. It promises nearness to God, and it delivers, though not right away and often through suffering. Notice how Jesus does this in our passage today. Verse 13, Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. First, Jesus spends time alone with his Father in prayer. Then he calls people to enter into a personal relationship with him. Then he forms a community of these called people, a family And finally, he sends them out with power and a message. First, Jesus spends time alone with his father. In the final article he wrote before he died, Henry Nouwen noted that most of us have something in the world that we want to change. Maybe it's CMS or a family member or your body, but you've got something, something that is your default prayer. Something that wakes you up that you obsess about in the middle of the night. And when we discover that we don't have the power to change that thing, what do we do? Well, then we start trying to recruit people to help us. Whether it's online or texting or on the phone or in person, we have a pull, which is I'm kind of desperate for this thing to come together, and I'm going to pull on you to join me in this endeavor because it's so important to me. And when that doesn't work, then we pray. Lord, help me, right? Jesus does just the opposite. He begins from the place of complete intimacy with his Father. John 5, 19-21, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. 
The Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. This gave Jesus complete freedom. He knew his belovedness. It was the core of his identity. It gave him the power to be content in all things. To be content when his father was doing something, to be content when his father wasn't doing something. To be content when he was well-fed, to be content when he was hungry. To be content when he was unknown, to be content when he was widely known. It's why he left the crowd to head up from the shore to the top of this mountain. And as he prayed, the father told him who he wanted him to invite to join them. In verse 13, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. To join him for what reason? Well, to be together. Not to accomplish anything. Just to be together. Verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him. That's where this thing begins. The main thing God wants from you is a personal relationship. That's why you exist. The Apostle Paul explained it this way to the men of Athens in Acts 17. He said, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they will live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. What Paul is explaining here is that God's call on your life initially feels like a desire for him. It feels like a hunger, a thirst, a yearning, an ache for more. And so you begin to seek him. And as you do, what you discover is that he was seeking you. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, it turns out that the reason that God sent Jesus into the world is because the Father and the Son want a family. They want many brothers and sisters for Jesus. They want many children for the Father. And they want you to live in their home forever. Jesus explains this in John 14 where he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. And this, of course, is why Jesus names us. In verse 16, it says, He appointed the twelve. To Simon, he gave the name Peter. To James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, he gave the names Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. 
Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. I love how intimate this is. Only best friends give each other nicknames like this. This is kind of a guy thing. If you've ever been in a fraternity or on a team, you've probably experienced this. Listen to how Bono describes the nicknames he and his mates gave each other in their Irish neighborhood growing up. It's the quote we've put on the front of your bulletin. He says, I've been best friends with Derek Rowan, or Googie, since I was three years old and he was four. Googie not only gave me the name Bono, he gave everyone in his family new and surreal names. The names we gave each other were not merely to make each other laugh, but also to illuminate something of who we were. Beyond those names given to us by our families at our birth, before our personalities were known, the names were supposed to describe the shape of your spirit as well as your physical characteristics. So Googie named Bono Bono because there was a hearing aid store nearby called Bonovox, which comes from the Latin for loud voice. And so he started calling Bono, Bono Vox, not because he was a great singer, but because he was an egotistical loudmouth that kept getting them all into trouble. But isn't it fascinating to watch what God did with this love relationship that Googie and Bono had from the time Bono was three and Googie was four? He grew into a mouthpiece for God all around the planet. A guy who could sing and call people to love their neighbors as themselves. A guy who became what he describes in his memoir as a radical centrist. One day Jesus will do this for you. If, like these apostles, you respond to his invitation. Romans 2.17 says this. Jesus speaking says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is how intimate your relationship will be with God into the eternity future. You're going to have a, a secret name just the two of you use. And not only does Jesus give us a relationship with him, he also gives us relationships with one another. Look at who he appointed to the twelve. To Simon, he gave the name Peter. To James, and the, son, uh, the, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. To Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You see, God created a community out of these people. He, Peter, who was impulsive, uh, his name was Simon, so he's like, mm, I'm going to call you the rock. You're going to become stable. In fact, you're going to become the, the rock on which I will build my church. Right now, you're just a hot mess. Right? The James and John, who were his cousins, he calls the sons of thunder, right? Which I think is just talking about how impulsively, easily angered their whole family was, right? How quick they were to get hot-headed. 
And yet he calls these people together, a zealot, which is a rebel against Rome, and Matthew, a tax collector who worked for Rome. Two sets of brothers, Judas, who was going to betray him, Peter, the hothead. And, and so what happens in this community? Chaos is what happens in this community. I love how Nowen describes this community. He says this, community is not easy. Someone once said community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. In Jesus' community of 12 apostles, the last name was that of someone who was going to betray him. That person is always in your community somewhere. In the eyes of others, you might be that person. So why would God assemble such a community? Well, because of his desire to adopt sinners into his family. What Jesus is doing is he is assembling a group of natural enemies and turning them into supernatural family, and we all have attachment disorders, right? We all are weak and wounded, sick and sore. We're all hurt because of the ways we've sinned, been sinned against, and our sin nature comes up with sinful ways to handle that. Be defensive, be appeasing, uh, be a peace faker, be aggressive. And yet, look at how much God loves us. 1 John 3, 1-4, John says, one of the sons of thunder, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself even as he is pure. Isn't it wild to think about how gentle one of the sons of thunder became? John was super poetic, very artistic, the most patient, longest-lasting disciple, the one that Jesus entrusted his mother to. And this kind of relationship, this unconditional relationship that the Father offers us as he adopts us into his family, is too good to keep to ourselves. Which is why the Father sent Jesus and Jesus sends us. Verse 14, he appointed the twelve whom he named apostles to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. But he doesn't send us out alone. Instead, he sends us with his spirit so that by His grace, we're empowered to speak the very words of God and to serve with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God gets glory. Peter, uh, the one who became the rock, put it this way in the letter he wrote, 1 Peter 4, 7-11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, Maintain constant love for one another, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, just as each one has received a gift. Use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him do it as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And so the question for us this morning is very simple. 
Do you hear Jesus' voice? If you do, then understand that this is an invitation to a relationship. But it requires a response. And it will change the path of your life forever. Because Jesus went up to the mountain and he summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he called apostles, and to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you, first and foremost, call us to be with you. And then, out of that intimate relationship, you send us out with your words and your power, so that we might be with you where you are, going out into the world and calling sinners into the family of God. We pray, Lord, that we would rest in your affection for us today and that we would serve with the strength that you provide so that in all things you can be praised. We ask this in your name. Amen.